Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. This week, I'm joined by Steph Burrall and Julia Marcus, and we're going to talk about COVID-19 and messaging. You won't want to miss this episode. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. All right, I'm back in Plenary Session. I'm joined via Zoom by two people who are friends of the show. Um, Julia Marcus from Harvard University and Steph Burrell from Johns Hopkins University. It's a pleasure to have you both back. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, one of the things that um, I was telling Julia um, privately recently was that COVID is a litany of bad things. There's no one going to, no one's going to say otherwise. It's affected us all in, in deep ways, psychologically, socially, economically, and it's affected vulnerable people, I think, even more than those of us who are lucky enough to have a job where um, we're able to do most of it. Um, but um, so many, many bad things. The one good thing is it brought a few people together. I think it, it allowed me to see some voices um, that I hadn't seen before. And I'm really grateful for that. And I, I put you both, um, you know, firmly in that category of people who um, I think I knew a little bit about your work, but I didn't know as much about it as I wish I had. And I'm grateful to have learned about your work. Um, so I was wondering if, I don't know, maybe I'll start by tossing this out. Um, you know, you both are find yourself in an interesting position because you have sort of experience in in thinking about public health, thinking about messaging, and we now have a new media that we've never had before, and we are now months into this pandemic, and you see examples of messaging all across the spectrum. So I wonder if you might just take a minute to tell, tell me, like, I don't know, what, what do you see that catches your eye? What do you see that you like? What do you see that troubles you? Maybe I'll start with Julia, and then we'll go to Steph, and then we'll, we'll just go from there. So just to clarify, are you talking about social media? Yes, let's not go to social media. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer this question because I joined social media shortly before the pandemic started. Uh, so uh, I don't have like a... a pre-pandemic. Exactly. Yeah. I don't mm. have pre-pandemic time, follow-up mm. time. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I... I have seen, um, I, first I'll start with the positive. I feel like there's been um, an amazing uh, use of social media during the pandemic for science communication, not just to the public from scientists, but also between scientists. Um, it's an amazing place to learn. And I think that's what keeps drawing me back mm -hmm. is, is partly that opportunity to not just, you know, see a new paper that came out, but hear what like the top expert thinks about it in mm -hmm. real time. I mean, that's that's incredible. And it's something that that's what draws not, you. That's what draws you in. It is one thing that draws me in. Yeah. And I think it's a huge asset. Um, and then in terms of communication between health professionals and the public, that has really captured my attention. And I, I think was one of the things that made me want to start writing about the pandemic was mm. watching this dynamic that you don't normally see because normally like a, a health department or the CDC will put out some guidance yes, and you don't right, see the public right, respond right. to that in real and, time. And there's no back forth. There's just guidance and That's then you, right. you interpret. Yeah, right. right. And and there, there are ways that the public does digest and respond to that guidance. You just don't get to have your finger on the pulse of it in mm -hmm. the same way that social media allows. And of course, it's not a social media is a selected group and you you yourself are seeing a tiny selected group of that selected group. But still, it's something to some way to like take the temperature. And I, I think there's been, an, uh, you know, a whole range of ways that that has been used. And I think also typically like 
the, the typical epidemiologist or virologist or immunologist doesn't have training in mm -hmm. how to communicate with the public and has been learning on the fly. And I think um, many people have incorporated that knowledge over time during the pandemic and, and maybe some more than others. That's very interesting. And I'm going to want to explore that theme in a minute. Uh, what about you, Steph? What, what are the things that come to your mind that you, you see you like you don't like? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a number of pauses, and I think Julie described them well. I think what I, you know, I, I joined Twitter. I remember I, I first joined Twitter when, um, you know, Demi Moore sent a tweet like in like 2009, and <laughs> and I remember there was a guy who was stuck in jail in like Cairo, uh -huh. and then he tweeted help, and I remember hearing about this new platform, and I joined it because I joined all platforms, I not see. to use them, but just almost like hold my name because I have a particular like username that I've used for everything for, uh -huh. for my life. And, but I didn't use it. And I think I sent a tweet a year, maybe or not um, for the last decade. And I think what, what struck me in early March was it became a go-to platform. I've been part of multiple public health responses, both yeah. at a, you know, at a municipal level yeah. kind of global research. And I never, sort of felt like, you know, I thought a lot of the communication was happening in the context of organized meetings that were either consultations hosted by WHO or by CDC, press releases. It felt much more organized in terms of like the sort of filters that existed. And then media, the traditional media would pick up, you know, their experts from the pre-filtering that, you know, that happened um, in terms of who was in the consultation and then, or who a university would put forward their comms teams would put forward as like an expert in something. So there was a lot of filtering that happened. So the final messaging that finally came through through the traditional media felt a little bit more streamlined. Right. Okay. And I think, you know, what I started seeing in, in early March was, you know, that, that, you know, the, the folks on Twitter were um, advocating, but they were often advocating in, in terms of their own spheres. And it felt very quickly that like people who are not on Twitter in terms of the general masses, we know that Twitter trends rich. We know that Twitter trends more educated. And it felt very quickly that there, there wasn't really a lot of folks talking about like, hey, I just, I just lost my job. I literally, like I had a job, I was providing for my family, and now I have lost my job. And that's painful. And, you know, we know employment is a social determinant of health. And we know, you know, we, we know it's important, you know, and, and I, I, you know, Julia knows this well, and I think you do. I'm like, I feel like I'm borderline a socialist. Like, I believe in universal health care and universal education. I wish government organized car insurance. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, That's I believe a, yeah. in universal everything. Yeah. And, and it, but it, it, but that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate that the economy is linked to people's well being. And I felt like there was, you know, it's been one of the many false dichotomies of like, let's not worry about the economy. Sure. Like, let's not, in, other than the fact that it's related to people's well being. And I think, that struck me early in March. I just felt like we are not hearing from the people on the on the wrong side of the you know the very many things that are happening right now, and you know and it, and it's continued to strike me. And I you know and I think even as this I, I as you know the, both of you know I I'm a person of privilege like like a white you know cis man you know who has every who can work remotely. And, and so it's like, I'm, you know, I, I've been blessed with all these privileges and, and I continue to be privileged during the context of this response. But I feel like, you know, that, you know, we have to be wary of that to not reinforce our own privileges or not only act in the context of our own privileges, or we just, the world will never get better. Oh, that's so well said. Um, Oh my God, you gave me like 10 things I want to, I want to ask you both about. Um, but I guess, I, I mean, just to summarize, I guess I would just say, like, it sounds to me like one of the things that has happened here is that, I mean, I've been on for, uh, as an avid user for five years and maybe six years, so one year of lurking. I spent my year, I spent my year, uh, uh, just, just, uh, just, just looking in and seeing what people are saying. Um, and, and, and I've noticed that it's really shifted dramatically in the pandemic. And I guess naturally so from a place where initially you would talk with friends and you would use a certain sort of colloquial language and certain kinds of jokes to talking with more colleagues in your field to talking with um maybe the whole department and uh, to talking with a few people in the public a reporter here or there now to really talking with society and that's a very different way to talk um and i don't know how i feel about it because sometimes i want to still have a place where i can say hey i'm thinking about this i'm thinking this way i'm thinking that way what do you all think thinking i'll hear from steph and julia and thinking i hear from my oncology friends sometimes when i talk about cancer i want that space but but then i can't forget that sometimes it's somebody from idaho who's 
you know, I don't know, about to vote in something and they, uh, you know, and they want to know what, you know, what do I think about it? I'm like, oh, I don't know. Um, so it really has these many, many audiences we can talk a little bit about. And then I think, Steph, what you're really hitting on is something that I've just been stuck with recently, emotional valence. Um, some things have more emotional hold on us. I was just recently ranting about the New York Times, I mean, not rant, a little critically, the New York Times has that counter and it says like, you know, you know 394,442 dead dead and you see that and you're like god that's awful there's a lot of that's the that's people's loved ones their grandmothers their their brothers their sisters um and so it's easy to say like whatever we do to bring that damn number down or slow that number we got to do everything but then all the sort of unanticipated spillover effects like okay let's close the schools well you know how many kids are going to get um physically abused and no one will find it how many kids are going to go hungry for the day um hearing more and more stories about, you know, a lot of parents are just leaving, you know, people who have to work, they're just leaving their kids at home unattended. You know, we're not talking about old kids. We're talking about, five, you know, five-year-old kids, six-year-old kids. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's always a few stories that come up. I don't want to hang on too much anecdotes, but, you know, somebody finds a gun and shoots their sibling or something, you know, that I, somebody sent me a story like that. Um, those are not, tab there's not on the New York Times counter for that. And so it doesn't have the, it doesn't have that emotional valence. And many of us, um, you know, who are in, academia we are uh you know we can live in the zoom world i mean i can do most of my academic work in the zoom world the only thing i can't is clinic but i can go there on wednesday and i can wear my mask and that sort of stuff um so i, I don't know i mean i think that those are some of the core challenges i guess in this in this social media who are you talking with and and what are the things that pull on your heartstrings and are, are, are things pulling equally julia any thoughts on, on those, those two ideas yeah i mean i i I was thinking about this also when Steph was talking too about um, the ways that, you know, if you have kind of standard public health communication during a pandemic, it's being filtered through teams of people yeah. at a health department or the CDC. And the product in the end is something that's ready to be public facing. Yes. So when you have social media, you have a bunch of individuals who are filtering through their own lens. And that may be a lens of privilege. It may also be a lens of fear, yeah. maybe a lens of anger. Yeah. It may be a lens of uh, deep sadness right now. I mean, yeah. there's so many ways that our emotions are are high yeah. and and we cannot um, we don't have a team of I don't I don't have like a team of people here in my bedroom that's like filtering my messages before they get on Twitter. And so, <laughs> yeah. um, and you can see that. And I think often yeah. in what people are posting when they're doing science communication, you can feel the emotion there. And often that emotion, I think, is anger. And and that's, you know, we, we're I think we all have reasons to be angry right now. But I think, unfortunately, often that that turns into anger at the, the anger community that you are trying yeah. to help. <laughs> anger, fear, shame outrage i mean i think yes. that kind of package emotion yeah and of course we know social media rewards those it, that's emotions. what i'm that's that's what i come to i i i don't know i maybe i put my i said something i shouldn't but i took two tweets um i don't want to name the people but they're both tweets about vaccination what it means and one person said something i thought actually quite beautiful a really beautiful metaphor about once people are vaccinated they can be very close together and one person said once you're vaccinated you still should wear your mask and all okay wear your mask you know and and i thought to myself i just looked at the tech the scoreboard i mean the scoreboard is one is five times as many people liking and retweeting it and that's not the lovely message it's the fear-based message um but you know that's just the kind of animal we are um and that concerns me steph you were going to say something yeah i mean i think so, so i mean i'll just say i think it's really natural i think that like in times of like you know i, I i'm obviously not a soldier you know by any means and but i imagine that a big part of the training you know in times of crises is about really ensuring that like no matter how large the crisis is, right, that you have an approach, like a structured approach. Do you know what I mean? Like somebody, the closest I've ever come is like managing codes, like, like managing a code blue, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's the worst situation to be in. That's I mean, right. I'm sure some people get a rush out of it. It's, it's for me, it's like every part of it is horrific. And, but like at the same time, there is an approach that you go through to like trying to manage your fear and your anger so that it doesn't drive your actions, but at the same time, being aware of those emotions and recognizing those emotions. And I think um, what within Twitter, like you don't, there's, there's not kind of like a structured outcome like that. So it is natural for people to take, you know, you know, we were, we were reflecting on this today with like the brightest scientists that I know, like Julia and Muge Sevic and, and others and saying that it's been very difficult and, People have been attacked, you know, for like whatever it's worth. I've been attacked, you know, called whatever. 
And I, and it's, it's, you know, I think that like, if you have the wherewithal to try to absorb as much negative energy as you can, then, then you should try and do that. Just, just take people's negative energy as much as you can, as much as you can absorb and, and then try to put it, you know, put it out and try to engage constructively. Because I think when you reflect anger back with anger, you know, people just reinforce their positions and, and, you know, you obviously, you don't resolve anything. And so I, I think that like, Twitter does, I think this is a fundamental problem with Twitter, the platform that, and, and it needs to address this. Cause I was thinking like, in the end, it'll just be like the Thunderdome. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, for it's, a mad I, I feel like it's like, getting there. It's well, getting there. Yeah. No, I mean, but you're filtering out yeah. these wonderful folks. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to name somebody. Monica Gandhi has been, you know, a leader in infectious diseases for a long time. And mm. I'm as a, as, as having come up under her leadership, I've seen her lead for a long time. I've seen her be warm. I know she's frontline for a number of different, you know, know, pandemics. And so it's not, it's not that it's about her. It's just that I know her outside of Twitter and that everything she shows on Twitter from what I know of her is also what she is as a human being. So, you know, I think in that, you know, I think some people are better able to like filter their, almost their persona and their Twitter, you know, kind of like dynamic and some people are not. And they, and I think, almost the better you are at Twitter and if there, if, if there's like a skill set at Twitter, but the better you are at Twitter, I, I think you do create a little bit of separation between those two. Mm. And I think there are certain folks that are just going on there and are sharing their feelings. Um, and they're not rewarded for it. Mm. You know? and, 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 you know, and I think that the lack of, of that lack of sort of like, you know, whether it be sympathy or empathy, depending on, on, on your own experience with seeing people share their emotions is driven by fear and anger. And, and I, and, and I don't, I don't begrudge anybody. I, I also like, I've, you know, I, I say that somebody asked me recently, well, why don't you believe in COVID zero? It's like, it's not that I don't believe in COVID zero. I don't want anybody to die of COVID. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I've taken care of folks with COVID. Mm-hmm. I've managed outbreaks. I've done all of that sort of frontline stuff for now almost a year. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I don't, I, I, of course I want COVID zero. The question is, is not about, what the goal is. It's about what, what we're doing to get there in a very practical way. So I'll say that I, I think Twitter, the platform does have things it needs to figure out in terms of like how it rewards emotions and how things show up in feeds and who it recommends. And, you know, because I know they're doing ongoing sentiment analyses. Like I know that they're analyzing these yeah. things in real yeah. time. So mm-hmm. they know, I think there's just a matter of like what they're, how, you know, how the the goal of Twitter as an information sharing platform probably intersects with the goal of Twitter as a business, yeah, and and driving advertising and those sort of complex dynamics that exist therein, and and that is is just something they have to grapple with. There's another thing going on here too at the same time, which is that we're all lacking in person interaction, yeah. yeah. And what yeah. does that do to our yeah. use of social media? And, you know, for me, it, may, it creates more of a pull towards social media that I didn't have before. Of course. Because I'm not around people. Mm-hmm. So it's like a way to... A place to, to yeah, talk yeah, to, to people. Find, yeah. To interact, to find a sense of community. And, and as you said, like, you've discovered these people during the pandemic that mm-hmm. you, you hadn't known before. And I've been... That, that, for me, has been the best thing that's happened in the last year is finding colleagues who think the same way I do, who, who have, have literally kept me sane and functional during this time. Um, but how does that, what, what does that do to our online interactions that we are, are lacking this sort of broader context and outlet that we should have that like relieves pressure, you know, um, it all ends up online. You know, I think that's like, I sometimes like imagine a conversation that I see on Twitter and how it happened in real life. And of course, all the escalation becomes de-escalation. So like in real life, you'd say like, um, you know, like after you're, after you're out, like 14 days out after your second dose of vaccine, like you can, you can definitely relax something. You can go meet your grandma. You can, you can take your mask off here or there. Uh, and then in real life, sometimes you say, whoa, you know, you, you know, come on. I'm still a little bit nervous. I want to get a little bit further, more data before I feel comfortable doing that. You're like, yeah, okay. That's, that's reasonable too. That's reasonable too. You know, I, I'm just a little bit more, you know, adventurous and I, if 
feel like I really need to hug my my grandma. And and then you're like and like and then you have a little chuckle about it, and then you, you go on with you know you you meet somewhere in the middle. <laughs> but in social media, it's like oh you start with the, you know the, I know because I put myself there. Uh, you know after you get the vaccine, second dose, you're asymptomatic. Fourteen days later, you know you can you can take things a little bit easier. You can relax a little bit. And they're like, look at you, you son of a bitch. And they're like you're empowering the anti-COVID people that don't even believe in COVID. And then they hear you, then they're gonna believe in it more. And they they're they're, they're quote tweeting you, and then you're gonna you're a bad person for having this and blah blah blah. Uh, you know, and it's just like up up a volume up. And then I, you know I I'm I'm not as good as Steph. Um, maybe now that he've told me that I, I will learn, um, because I think there's a lot of truth to what you said, but I mean, I mean, my instinct is just to be like, if they're going to be a dick to me, I'm going to be a dick back. And then I'm like, you know, why don't you, you know, learn to read this thing before you talk, um, you know, so, but that's not helpful, but, um, but, but that's the difference. It's just the volume up. And my colleague put it well, he said, um, in real life, I like most people I meet, but on Twitter, I hate most people I meet. And he said, there's something about what's going on that's driving that. Um, but I want to talk for a second about, um, uh, maybe a different topic. We can talk about social media all the time. Um, I guess I want to talk for a minute about, um, you know, like for me, like what does the end of COVID mean? And I guess I'll, I'll put my cards on the table. I, I, I don't believe we'll ever have COVID zero. I think it's going to be an endemic virus that's always going to have some outbreaks and there's always going to be, you're going to read about a uh, nursing home in Pennsylvania has an outbreak of SARS-CoV-2 and unfortunately 33% of the people in the nursing home died or something like that, despite vaccination, despite all this stuff. Um, I think it's going to come like that in bursts here and there. Um, when we, you know, uh, eventually, um, I think think um th- like it won't end with a like a bang it'll end with a whimper um uh, and it'll end when um i reminded of that malaysian airliner that was flying over the indian ocean and then for like 16 weeks cnn literally every day was that malaysian airliner oh, i remember that you remember that it's like where did no, it go of course. they even of speculated that a ufo uh, there's i swear to god i swear to god there was one where somebody speculated that it was like nabbed by a ufo and i was like okay they are gone too much on this malaysian airline but i think COVID, we're in the Malaysian airliner phase of COVID. It's every minute of every breath of everything. Um, and I think it'll end the moment where you go four days and you didn't hear about it. Um, then you, then you hear about it again. Um, but I guess I'm curious, like, um, and along the way of getting to that moment, we can talk, this is a whole nother thing to talk about, but talk about the, the inequalities that will be perpetuated. And I think, you know, you, you've been talking nicely about that, what, what you've seen with vaccines. But I guess I'm wondering if you might, I don't know what is what what does that for the people out there who need that optimism for like what will it look like what is this what does the post covid look like um what would you tell them maybe julia you want to go first on this i'm gonna let steph go first okay go ahead. you know what first I, I just want to reflect on, on the malaysian airlines mm. flight because i mean first of all that was i mean it's such a tragedy yes. right but you know what's so interesting about that during that tragedy was that um mh17 happened the other malaysian airlines flight that was shot down over Ukraine. I know this because the remember, it was the yeah. Australia AIDS conference, and there was a number of scientists uh, and AIDS HIV specialists on their way uh, on the Amsterdam Kuala Lumpur flight that were then going to connect on to uh, to Melbourne and, and were were sadly killed in that. And it was in the news for like a day, mm-hmm. and it just I mean I think that you know and I was always struck because there was it was such a tragedy and and you know I was on my way I to that meeting as well and. A lot of calls and people are like, are you okay? And it's like, this is not about me, but I posted one of those, like, I am safe. Cause it turned out there was a tragic, there was a, one Canadian on that mm-hmm. flight and they were like, are you the Canadian? I'm like, I'm, I'm not the, I wasn't, I wasn't that, that person. But it was interesting about like what captures the attention, irrespective of Twitter, which is what captures the attention of people. And it's often about mystery and intrigue and, and, you know, what, what I think Peter Sandman and, and, um, uh, Jody Lanner and others talk about as like outrage factors. Do you know what I mean? And, 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 you know, there was a number of like things that were like kind of intriguing about that Malaysian Airlines flight because it was mysterious as compared to the, the, the tragedy that happened with the one that was shot down over Ukraine. And in the end, the same number, I mean, it was just people, you know, a plane full of people died. Um, but just in terms of like what was, what, you know, how, how, how the public reacted to it, I think has always been instructive to me. Mm-hmm. So it was just, just cause you raised it. No, yeah. I think that's a yeah. very good point. Yeah. You know, I think that um, the, you know, when I think about this pandemic ending, I was, you know, the, the definition of, of an epidemic is, you know, more cases than expected, mm. basically, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like it's observed versus expected. You know, when we have, having managed outbreaks, you know, for, for most of my career, uh, outside of, you know, I should say I've managed outbreaks in the early part of my career, then went into academia where I've been doing more research and, and obviously now for the last year have been back to more hands-on management. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I mean, an outbreak is even on site is like any any cases more than you'd expect. So for COVID, that means like one case um, is a suspect outbreak, two cases with confirmed on site is a real outbreak. Um, you know, an epidemic at a city level, often it's very subjective. I mean, if, if, if it's zero, then expect it is like any transmission right. is is then you're in epidemic stage and pandemic obviously is that at, at multiple across multiple countries. So, you know, I think that like, What's not going to change is like, I think you said it, it's, it's not going to be that like it goes to zero. This, you know, I think this was clear very early. Like this thing is just part of our existence now. This virus, these viruses, you know, I'm not one of these, you know, it's so interesting because what I wanted to talk about viruses early. I've been wanting to send this tweet, but like the origin of viruses going back to like yes. February. Uh-huh. But I felt like if I sent it, I would be immediately canceled. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah, immediately. But actually, feeling, if you yeah. read about yeah. how viruses have evolved from actually probably independent organisms to dependent organisms and how they intersect with humans and over time, if you can have those conversations in, you know, in a meaningful way, it's actually it's so interesting and it's so important to understand. That it's instructive that almost a symbiotic relationship like viruses do not want to kill human beings no they don't they right. don't want to kill anybody right. because they depend on us if right. we die they die they want it they just exist to propagate their yes. genetic material by the way as do we yeah do you know what i mean like yeah. our only purpose is like to propagate genetic material and so i think that like you know i i don't i think at some point our expectation of the numbers of acceptable right. cases are gonna is gonna modify yeah and I think, and exactly, that shouldn't change. I, I, the example I often give is that post-SARS in, 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 in Canada, obviously SARS part one was a major thing in Canada. It yes. didn't really come to the U.S. for a number of reasons, but it was a major thing. And, and post-SARS, uh, there was an outbreak in British Columbia at a long-term care facility where the antibodies were cross-reacting with SARS antibodies. In mm-hmm. fact, it was OC43. And it killed. It was it was deadly, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't SARS. And so I think what it says is that, like there can still be risk, even in the context of vaccination. We don't know how well this vaccine will work in really elderly folks. There's a lot of open questions that exist there, and so you know these things will rem- could remain deadly, and we're going to have to really step up our support in terms of you know infection prevention, control, etc. Within these settings. But I, I, you know, I've never been one. And I think this is like where I don't know if I get canceled anymore. I think I've said it enough, like that a restrictions based approach to public health is an, is an appropriate response to public health. And for me, I would, I mean, I, I feel that like you can do restrictions Mm -hmm. after you've put in place all of the resources that people need in order to prevent transmission. We get into the weeds about what that means, but I've not been one to sort of think that restrictions are an effective response. So to me, I believe, and uh, you know, I've, I've stayed away from prediction on online, and then I'm going to hand off to, to Julia because this is such a dangerous game. Is I do not think, in the context of the amount of immunity that we have now, in the, as well as a vaccine, that there's going to be an additional wave in in the winter of 2021. Mm-hmm. I believe that there is going to be a seasonal effect; yes. that there will be a seasonal slowing towards the summertime, and I believe that at that point, it's going to be much more difficult. You know, right now it's maybe more the extremists and the COVID denies that are marching in the streets. Although I will note in France, the protests are not small. No, they're, they're huge. Big. They're huge. Yeah. Yeah. They're huge. But nonetheless, that in North America, they've been more along. Most folks have just kind of gone along with it. Yeah. I do think once the ICUs and emerges are empty in the summertime. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that there's going to be a lot more pushback, you know, and more broad pushback if these are the sorts of approaches used moving forward. And I think, you won't have the kind of strange political angle and things. So, so I, I do think that the summertime is a time when our lives start approximating more of what we used to, what we used to appreciate. And hopefully it'll be a better normal. I've heard people say this, that one where we do pay more attention to benefits and, and structural racism and, and the things that, that create these extreme disparities uh, across societies. But I do, I still believe it'll be more of an approximation of, of what existed before. That was the long answer. That's a great answer. Julia, what do you think? Yeah, I also I refuse to make predictions, but um, but I think one one thing I would just raise is the end of the pandemic, um, you know, won't just be measured by a number of 
expected versus observed cases. Mm -hmm. It's also kind of a collective perception yes. and, and, and individual perception. Every person probably has some sense of like, I'll know the pandemic is over when dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. And it might be when my kids are back in school full time or, or when I'm able to go back to my job or, you know, what, when I'm not struggling to find something to eat, you know, whatever the, the, the case may be, when I can just see my friends, when I can go to a club and, and those, as those things start to happen, I think there will sort of naturally be, um, I guess my point is there there is yeah. there is an epidemiologic way to define the end right. of the pandemic, and then there's more of a psychological experience and perception way, and some of that is going to be driven by the amount of attention paid to it by the media, as yes. you were suggesting. No, I think that's so well put because for most of us, I think pandemics end when you feel that sense of normalcy in your life. You're going to do just probably maybe not as you were doing before, but just something more than what you're doing now, and something enough to feel like a real person again. Um, I just wanted to say one thing. I mean, I, I wanted to pick your brain on one thing. I, I guess, I guess um, one of the reasons why I've always been troubled by the way in which, um, you know, the great Barrington Declaration signatures have been signed, the way in which I think John Ioannidis has been treated is that I think even though there are some real areas of substantive disagreement and those areas deserve to be fleshed out and there may even be errors in some of the manuscripts and at some portions of the preprint process, I think there were serious errors and those deserve to be discussed. I do think it is a mistake to view all those people as evil people and that they are, I don't know, I don't know, I mean, you get, I, I, I really don't think they are evil people. I'm actually, I'm, I know they're not. And I know they're not motivated by any financial consideration because there's no financial winners when the world is dying of a pandemic. Even the jet blues and all these right wing crazy people who they think you can just reopen the economy. They will not win and make a dollar if everyone is dropping dead. OK, so there has to be some, some guardrail like no scientist is going to there's no check big enough to get me to say some crazy thing that I don't believe. I believe they believe what they say. And so it troubles me that they have been really treated, I think, as pariahs, especially on Twitter, um, because for all the things that I think are worth talking about and talking with them about, there is something they're saying that people are not hearing that I think was really important, which is, can our society take these restrictions without resources? Can we take it? And in the original essay that this guy wrote in March, he said, if you keep restricting society in this blunt way, you do not know what will happen. You don't know if there'll be civil strife. You don't know if democracy itself can sustain it. And the reason I say this is because I'm worried before this pandemic, I'm like an Elizabeth Warren. Like, I think that the, the way in which money flows through our system is the deep rot of this society. It consolidates in the hands of few and is perpetuated in their offspring. Um, and it is not freely distributed. And, and the American dream is dead. I mean, it was there in post-World War II. And it has been, you know, s severely impaired since the Reagan administration. Upward mobility is down. You, 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 many people cannot live as good a life as their as their father compared to their grandfather or their mother compared to the grandmother, um, that breeds deep resentment. And, and all of the things we've done, we have not even yet seen the full ramifications of this, the economic impact. But it's not impacted, you know, my stocks are way up. I don't know how the fuck that's possible, but my stocks are the highest they've ever been. But people who don't have enough money for their next meal, whose kids are going hungry, they are hurting like they've never hurt before. And I guess I mean, I, I, I think it's abominable. I think it's unconscionable that that's happening. I also think that even if you're just a purely selfish actor and you don't really even care, you should care because there's so much of this that's going on that the, the entire society is going to face a deep crisis. And I, I don't know. I don't know if, if you all think about this, but I thought about this when I was reading Steph's article because – Steph's article was sort of, a, um, I don't know, a very broad umbrella review of other things that are suffering under COVID, like tuberculosis control, like malaria, like um, hunger. And, and, and I think it's so easy for people who spend their time wanting to get the message out about restrictions to not think about these domains. And it's so easy to say we don't have to – I mean people are literally saying like you, not, only, not only are the Great Barrington people wrong, and here's why. They're saying they're so wrong – 
We cannot even talk to them. They shouldn't be talked to. They should be, they should be quarantined indefinitely in a hotel and they should never be allowed to speak or be heard again. We don't want to interact with them. They're so poisonous to us. Um, um, and, 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 and to me, that's, that's really, that really scares me because I think that, you know, whatever disagreements you have with them, they are pointing out one thing that we're not really taking seriously, which is what are we going to do about this impending, I think, greatest catastrophe we've ever seen of income and wealth and uh, and hope inequality there's like it's 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 uh, any, all right that's rambling but any, any thoughts steph no oh, julia i took the last one <laughs> julia yeah. um, I, I i think steph is gonna have a lot to say on this but maybe i'll just say you know i saw the the great barrington declaration and the john snow memo as um both having really valuable perspectives that were not neither of which were fully fleshed out and had polarized each other. So yes. one, the Great Barrington Declaration was focusing on the harms of our response and our restrictions. And those are very real. And then the Jon Snow memo in reaction to that, which and, and the Great Barrington Declaration had really been in the reaction to a reaction to the, the lack of attention to those harms, I think. Um, and that that's fair, but didn't really flesh out like some other aspects that are really important. Um, like how does focus protection work, for example? Right. That's what um, I was saying. What <laughs> does know, that mean? A minor detail. <laughs> minor detail. But like, oh, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, I'm going to get Martin on. I'm going to talk to him about it. But yeah, yeah, I'm curious. Yeah. But then the Jon Snow memo, I think, was focusing on the harms of the virus and, yeah. and what happens when you leave this unchecked. And and of course, that is that's a very real question too. And and those early papers you're referring to from March, the early op-ed from John Ioannidis that, that was saying, well, we don't know what's going to happen. Well, sure, but like we also imagine a world in which we did absolutely nothing to respond to COVID. That will... And that's a horrific counterfactual Yes, I think too. it is, so yeah. There's no, there's no like, um, there's no simple truth here, but the unfortunate part, I think, is the polarization that, that makes it very difficult to have to, you know, conversate productive conversations that are in the, the gray area. No, I think, I think that the, you're, you're hitting on it. I, I thought that, um, you know, I mean, um, the, I, I, I said at the beginning, like, you know, I thought that the great Barrington, I, I wanted to know more. What does focus protection mean? But John Snow, I wanted to know more about like, like, they're like, you know, maybe we should use lockdowns until the vaccine can come and all these things. But I wanted to know more like, well, what's your plan for poor people who are hungry? I wanted it to say, like, I mean, I mean, this is what I wanted it to say. I wanted it to say, like, look, we fucked this up. We fucked this up because we should have had a pandemic response team. So the moment we heard about cases in Wuhan, we flew a whole team there and we did all this work. That's what public health really means. And we need to go after contact tracing at the source and we shouldn't have let China stonewall us and these sorts of things. I wanted it to say that we should have maybe shut down travel earlier. And when you shut down travel, you shouldn't announce you're going to shut down travel. So you get everyone congregating in the airport and spreading. OK, that's not a good plan. I wanted it to say that as long as we're going to have restrictions. Every time we put a restriction, we're going to send everyone a check for $1,000. Every restriction, another $1,000. And if we cannot get you the $1,000, if, if the political parties will not allow the $1,000, we will have to rethink the restrictions because we don't know. If we cannot get people $1,000, we can't just restrict to protect some people and not others. So I wanted to say specifically, um, and then the last thing I'd say is this is something that um, Matt Smith um, told me, uh, the philosopher, Matthew Smith, um, which was that um, many of the experts are happy to go on TV and say, you know, you people out there, wear your mask, w wash your hands, don't meet your grandma, you listen to me, you listen to me. And he says, why don't they go on TV and say, listen, you people in the Senate, if you do not pass checks for $2,000 for everybody, I'm coming for you. I'm going to bring I'm going to bring every ounce of my academic credibility to fuck you up because you are killing people because you are not supporting people. You can't just put restrictions up. You got to get them money. And I don't give a shit about your ideology. This is not the time for those games. But they don't use their pulpit for that because that puts yourself in vulnerable position. Like then they'll say, maybe you shouldn't be dean of the this public health school. Maybe you shouldn't be the fundraiser for the Harvard program or blah, blah, blah. That puts yourself out there. So, I mean, I thought he made a really good point and I didn't really fully process it until I listened to him over again. And anyway, Steph, I know you have a lot to say on this issue. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a lot, right? I mean, I think indeed the, you know, it was when we think back to sort of China's response and I say this as, gingerly as I can, um, there was a lot of, of hearkening back to SARS in terms of what happened, which is, you know, um, decentralized governments within China. Um, I think they're not being great communication with teams in Beijing. They're being, uh, you know, wanting to be really a lot of control over the messaging that came out 
and maybe as much focus on like the message that came out as 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 the response. And I think you know, we've seen a reporter now, you know, be sentenced to jail. Yes. We've seen early folks die and and not be rewarded. And I'll say. This isn't the first time. In fact, it reminds me of SARS. It reminds me of the paid plasma scandal. Like there's a lot of things that we need to understand that would have been early prevention, you know, and, and, and meaningful approaches that it do include travel and, and restrictions and things. So I mean, it's not to say that blanket travel restrictions. I will note, I, I, I like to think I was on a COVID tour the early part of this year. I think maybe, maybe both of you know, I used to travel up until this, you know, until 2020, about 200 days a year. Oh, wow. So I traveled about 400,000 miles a year oh, and wow. I was on the road about 200 days a year. And I was in, you know, even in, in the first three months of this year, I was in or first three months of last year. I was in Asia. I was in South Africa. I was in West Africa. I was in, you know, I was in Japan. So I was kind of like COVID was following me or I was following COVID. I remember like I landed in Geneva. I'll do from the contact Bangkok. tracing about this, Van. I'm going <laughs> to totally. get to the bottom of what happened I, I here. Was, <laughs> no, I, I was bringing, I, mean, I don't know if I was, you know, but I remember I like, I was on that, I was on like a Bangkok to, to uh, Geneva flight uh-huh. and I landed and then they were like, oh, there's a case in Switzerland. Like it was oh, literally wow. like yeah, yeah. wherever I went, it's there was t- COVID t- everywhere. And, yeah. and so it's, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think we could but, talk but you, a lot you're about not, You're not typhoid Mary. Yeah, in this but, but okay. w- I think what was interesting <laughs> yeah. was that, like, you know, when I landed in, in JFK, yes. having just been in Asia, they, yes. you know, they were like, and I use global entry, and they were like, you know, do you, um, have you been to Asia? I go, yes, I, I've just come from Asia. Where? Japan. Okay, no problem. And it was really, my global, like, global entry didn't work. Like, you had to go through, and they've just were, were like, basically, have you been to China? I don't know actually what would happen if I said yes to China, but he's uh-huh. like, all right, you know, peace out. And, and then you go, and so it's like, there are things that like absolutely like airport screenings and things yes, and, yes, you know, that could have been yes, set up yes. very early. And it's not to say that I was against those. I don't believe necessarily you can control internationally, but I think you can, you can be responsive to like airport screenings, et cetera, and, and be thoughtful. But I do, I think, you know, so then, you know, talking a little bit about polarization, you know, I, I will say it's so interesting that like, wh- I, we wrote a piece also calling like, balancing uh, the response, balancing precaution and unintended consequences. And mm. we started writing that March 13th or 14th, and we published it in, in April. And and it was just like a little paper. It didn't get a lot of attention, but it was just something that like things we wanted to say with a, a bunch of different folks. And But then I saw this response to John Ioannidis, who, by the way, like for those of us who are epidemiologists, he's like the most cited person. I know, I know. He's like the Barack Obama of our field. <laughs> I mean, yes, like, yes. He's, he's, I don't know. I think I looked it up. He has like something like 400,000 citations or something. So it's just like this incredible amount. <laughs> he's more, he's in the thousand paper club. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And, yes, and, and so there's sort yes, of like, he's, yes. he's, and so to see him go down as this like right wing conspiracy theorist over what seems to have been like a $5,000 thing that like he obviously didn't, you know, it's like, you really, you're going to give up like your lifetime of a career for five grand, do you know what I mean? Unless there, or there's like paid, millions of dollars. Paid to the university, not to him directly. Right, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, that, I think it, it just was like, I think that, you know, when you talk about financial impropriety without like getting into the weeds yes. of it, it just, it feels wrong. And I will say that like, I agree, like the great Barrington declaration that the reason that I, I didn't sign it, and I've, I said this to Martin, I, who I respect and yeah. I like, yeah. Um, and we wrote a paper together. Um, you know, was that it just like, it didn't include the things I wanted and yes. that I've been doing a lot of local advocacy for. And I think if they just written it to focus on principles, like just public, these are some core public health principles that we think are important rather than like getting into the weeds on like, like an implementation plan and then maybe followed it up immediately with an implementation plan. Maybe it would have had a different dynamic. Yes, I also I, think there was mistakes of like engaging like politically. I, I don't, you know, I just... There was a lot of things that I think yes. were were I know. complex that I think were mistakes. And by the way, like I don't think you needed to do any sort of event around it. We could have done it virtually. I I you know, think that it that could was have been like the champagne and the wood. That like was all of it. That was, was a just, mistake. Bad just branding. Such a mistake. Bad branding. Yeah, all of it. That's right. And I think that so like those things were but if yeah, I mean like the idea that he himself is like an evil person, you know, I, I thought was a mistake. And and you know, I think the only advantage I have is like, I just don't care what people think about me. I have a family. Do you know what I mean? I say this to Julie all the time. Like, I have a family. I really care what my family thinks about me. Even most, a lot of my family doesn't necessarily always like me all the time. But like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, but, but like th- them I care about. 
I, I, and I care about a few professional folks because they've been my mentors and others. And I just don't, I've never been popular and I just don't care. And I think, but I, but at the same time, like, you know, it's, it's amazing. Like I actually felt professional fear for the first time. And, and I remember talking to my partner at home being like, I might just end up being a family doc at the end of this. And yeah. which is fine. I love, yeah. I love what I do. And right. you know what I mean? But like my career may end yeah. as a result of like me being, and, and by the way, you know, Juwan is also in a bit of a high profile position. And I was like, this, this could reflect poorly on you. And I think, you know, we've been supportive of each other in this household, but it was like, that was the sort of conversations we're having in April. Um, and, and I feel more okay with it now, but you know, there's been like, I was like New York Times stories about it. like, you know, like it was like, you know, related to Great Barrington and all these things that were like, I think really made me professionally afraid. And, and that's a mistake because as we've talked, you know, with colleagues of ours who are more junior, yes, so I know. smart. Yes. Doctoral, like there's been some doctoral students who have had no filter. Yes. And postdocs and whatnot. Perhaps and there's been to some a of detriment. the smartest <laughs> doctoral students. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I mean, but some of the doctoral students that are like the smartest people I know who are so afraid of saying anything. Steph. And dude, so you ev- just. Everybody, everybody I know, my own generation, I'm 38. Um, people, my cohort, they're all, they're like, what are you doing? They're like, I, I'm, 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 I'm getting phone calls off the hook. And they're like, shut the fuck up. They're like, COVID off your radar. Don't talk about COVID. They're like, just do your cancer. Shut up. Shut the fuck up. And, and I'm like, I don't know. Anyway, we can talk, but I mean, I'm getting a lot of, th- I'm, and then so oh, I got, I got, I got, I mean, I've, I've shared with yeah. Julia actually going back several months uh, without specifics. Also like warnings from folks. Shut up. Shut up. And I'll just say like, you know, it's actually like the experience, like throughout all of this, while I've been on Twitter, I, I mean, you're not, not to self aggrandize, but like, I'm still working in homeless shelters. I'm still doing outbreak management. And like seeing that is like reminding me what a shit show this is. Yeah, and it actually, right. it, that part is enraging because throughout all of this, they've not been part of the story and the part of the conversation when they've been so disproportionately affected. So it was like, it, I think it was like also just like, like hands on the support, you know, seeing it and the disconnect between the narrative and the media and like what was happening. I feel like that's changing a little bit now. So I feel more optimistic, but nonetheless, I think that like, that part was really tough for me. And, and part of the reason why I'm like, no, you know what? I'm like, I'm, I'm going to keep rolling my dice here and I'm going to keep going down. And by the way, also like Julia Marcus, you know, and, and it's like support from somebody as thoughtful, you know, as Julia and, and a few others is like, that's, that is like strong. Yeah. That means the world. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? In terms of like saying, you know what, I, I'm going to, I'm going to continue down this path for, you know, and, and see where it goes. I, I wonder if you just touch real quick on the, the one part, um, after all this is over and people look in there and the income inequality and the wealth is bad, I mean, I wonder if you might just talk for a well, minute. Well, I, I, yeah. you know, I want to, I mean, I think that like, I always, the, the way that I've always thought about inequalities is that they can happen quickly and take a really long time to fix. Yeah, exactly. And I exactly. think we've seen this, yeah. these like shifts, whether it be famines, um, you know, public health, other public health emergencies that have arisen, you know, that the inequalities that happen obviously are going to affect people on the margins and they can happen very quickly. And, and I'll just say the, the, the paper, by the way, you know, Julia is a main co-author of, of that paper, which I'm very thankful for. And, uh, you know, is that actually like it was one of our doctoral students who's from Rwanda, but has been at Hopkins for several years, um, you know, uh, you know, noted just his fear of his, just the intense amount of starvation that's happening, even in the context of relatively wealthy, um, you know, central Eastern African country, like, you know, it, and, and so, you know, each of the people, actually, each of the sections was written by somebody who's really passionate. Anna Kogeson, uh from Sweden, folks on reproductive health, that's her area of specialty, and Mugi Sevic on, on TB, uh, Carrie Lyons works also on a number of things, but malaria, I see. and then Amrita Rao on HIV. So I each see. of the folks kind of got to like, so write, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, these areas that they're passionate about, not coming down just on the response with the, it's not about disentangling. I think as Julia said, the pandemic or the response, it's just, it's just a thing. And just at least being aware of it. And and also like people keep saying it's once in a lifetime. I'm like, it's just not, Yeah. this is not once in a lifetime. This is going to happen again. Yes. We are going to have another, whether it be, a, I worry by the way, about influenza next year. I'm yeah. just going to like put this out there. Of course. One I, year without any, grave, yes. <laughs> without any, I have yeah. such grave yeah. concerns yeah. about what's going to happen with influenza next year. 
that I, I don't, you know, it actually, you know, it's one of these pandemic, you know, like I wake up at night and just be like, oh wow. my God. Yeah. But, but, but I'll just say, so anyway, so it's not once in a lifetime. We have to kind of like create surge capacities in our systems and shock capacities and think about messaging and the social media. I'll stop there, but I just, you know, I no, think it's, I mean, I, it's I, going to take a long time to address. And, and then the last thing I'll just yeah. say about wealth and I, is yes. that like, it's your stocks are going up. I, that article that I shared in the New York Times, you know, it, I've never been so angry about reading something about why the economic fundamentals during this time are strong. Yeah. It's enraging. It's enraging. It's mm -hmm. the fact that overall, like the economy's gained a trillion dollars because of this shift. Yes. It turns out like small business is not good for the economy. No. Like that is enraging. And and so indeed, like people's stocks, I, I will note, and not that it, I don't begrudge anybody for owning that. I don't own, I guess I have a retirement plan. Yes, I don't like, own I, stocks, I but I've yeah. seen them go up. I understand that they're going up and it's like never before have I understood such a, a disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street with also the amazing thing of the fundamentals of Main Street being strong in the context of such grave suffering. Like it's enraging, it's enra I think, um, but it also yeah. speaks to why folks are comfortable. Sorry. No, I, I, it enrages me so much and I think it speaks to the fact that um, these people with lots of capital assets are in a position where they are confident that the, that the United States will never let them fail. Uh, they will never let them go bankrupt uh, because we can't let rich people go bankrupt. We can let poor people go bankrupt. And I think that's what enrages me the most. And um, when I saw my retirement account and I see I saw it plummet in March and I said, OK, fine. You know, I got hopefully a long time before I. Well, who knows if I do more podcasts, maybe it'll be quicker. But I thought hopefully it'll be a long time before I retire. Uh, then it's coming up like through the roof. It's ridiculous. Um, OK, but I wanted to talk before we have to go and I'll and have Julia talk about this first. Um, schools. Um, I think that you um, were. Um, it, and and I I'm 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 I might be a I might be a, I might be a, somebody who's a, somebody who's a, who's on the bad side of this too. But there are there are strident voices on schools, and I've I've fallen into where I want to sit on schools because I've read enough, and I think I I've reached my view, which is that um, my view isn't that they have to always be open. Um, my view is that um, that that unless the healthcare system is actually at capacity, then it's got to be open. And I came to that view because I looked at the different domains, how it affects. Um, parenting parents particularly women more than men how it affects children particularly poor children minority children more than rich children and this the real fact that um that that the school closure is just it, it makes no sense i mean there's if you actually look at like which ones are closed and which ones are open it's uh, it's has nothing to do with any property of the virus it's it's just to do with who's got the money um all right so there are a few so i think i take a hard line position on the open side um um, but I think they're harder lines. I mean, I think they're people who are really even more than me. Um, I see some hard line. I see a lot more hard line positions on the keep it closed side. Um, we don't know for sure. It could increase debts, those kinds of things. Um, I wonder how you think through it. You, you know, you're, you're somebody who's, um, always polite, doesn't want to get too uh, stuck in the controversy, but you also want to speak up about, I think, everyone's, um, rights to think about this. Um, how do you view the school closure debate? Um, do you think some of the messaging does us a disservice? Um, maybe I should actually become more moderate, but I mean, I mean, how do you think about it? Yeah, I would say I've taken very few hardline positions during mm -hmm. this pandemic. And, and there's probably a few reasons for that. One is just uncertainty. Like I really am sure of very few things. Yes. Um, I have taken a hard position on shaming and certain, you know, ways, you know, blaming the public, those kinds of, you know, yes. elements of public health communication that yes. to me are like non-negotiably bad. Yes. Um, but schools is one of many things where I, I feel like, yes, it's clear schools should be prioritized mm -hmm. above many things in society. I also think it's a Rorschach test that people see what they want to see in the data to some extent, that people look at the same sets of studies and draw different conclusions, and they are 100% sure about those conclusions. And to me, I don't have that certainty. On the other hand, I, I have a conflict of interest here in the sense that I'm a parent of a, mm. a first grader mm. who is really struggling with remote learning, has not done... Um, He's fine, but he hasn't done great during the pandemic. And we're probably in like, um, you know, the top 5% uh, privileged people in the country, right? So if he's doing, if he's having a hard time, I imagine there are any other people who are having a much harder time. And so faced with that reality every day, I almost feel like I can't say anything 
really strongly about schools. But what I do say is that I feel like calls to just close the schools, as we've been talking about, you know, resources before restrictions, you have to think about what that means for people, what that means for kids, what that means for working parents, you know, parents who are working at home, it's, it's hard enough. Parents who can't work at home, what does that look like? And, and how, how are kids needs and, and parents needs not being met in that situation? And how can you meet those needs? So I think it can't just be a call to close the schools. It must, it must come with that broader context. And I would say that for, for everything during this pandemic, that any, anything you're calling to close, you have to be thinking about that, that context. And even anything that you're asking somebody to do, Yes. you know, quarantine, isolate, distance, wear a mask, right. like think about the context there, give them a mask. If you yes. want them to wear a mask, right. you know, think, think about like what actually needs to happen to help this, this, um, part of society all be altered in this way. And that's what like I, my friend was telling me about Taiwan and he's like when you go there for quarantine they give you the hotel to stay at, they deliver you the food, they check in on you, they give the app on the phone, they make it easier for you because um, that's what you need to do and and, and and in this country you need to do even more because people have less to start with I think we've had, uh, that's, and, and the schools thing, uh, the one thing I, I have to, I'm, I'm, it's my soapbox, but like you know if you, like Europe is not closing the, they're doing everything they can to not close the schools and actually the schools are more more important here because we have a worse situation with income inequality, with racial inequality. It's worse here than it is there. We're the ones who should err on the side. We should be a little bit more aggressive in opening the schools um, than they are, at least, um, I, I think. And um, yeah, so I get I get troubled by that. And um, I don't know. I, I do. Th- some There's a, a some Harvard student who messaged me privately and, and he's working on this, trying to estimate something. But um, there's certainly some le- some number of cases of child abuse that are not getting reported. And 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 maybe there is some trade off uh, that if you open schools, there's going to be a few more people who die. And then he says, though, I mean, his gut feeling is that if you were to articulate that trade off, how many more people may perish so that there are X fewer cases of child abuse? He says, like, people will be willing to sign up to perish to avoid the child. I mean, like, you know, he's not trying to like be grim about it, but like, like, I know I would, you know, like, like if you're, if you're telling me that like my sacrifice would mean that some kids are no longer in abusive situations. Yeah. You know, sign me up for that sacrifice. Um, but he's saying that if you made that emotionally valent to people, like you just show them the trade off that people will feel so different in their soul about this choice that we're making that we don't feel because we don't think at all about those kids and what's happening to these 3 million kids that are just frankly lost since March. Steph, um, and I know you have to go. Yeah, so, I mean, I think, yeah. Oh no, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I've just, uh, had a, a power outage. So, oh, wow. I mean, I think, you know, my, my thoughts on schools are, I think you guys have already articulated issues to the students. <clears throat> One personal reflection that I thought was interesting was in talking to friends in Sweden was, you know, I mean, if you cannot work remotely, right, then, you know, you like, what is the age of kid that you can leave home alone? Like, what is that age? Is it 12? Is it 14? Is it 15? So, you know, without relying on help, and it's probably, you know, in in Sweden, the decision was close schools uh, for those uh, 16 and above, including universities, and leave them open for those who are younger. And I'll note a number of healthcare workers, clinicians who are going to be addressing the needs of, of COVID were thankful because there's not really a great backup you know, and, and I think in, in a lot of scenarios, by the way, including in my own circles among clinicians where people are relying and, and like bubbling in some ways with their own parents of course. to help yes. them with childcare issues. Yes. And you've created this sort of, you know, this, this, you know, dynamic that I think is suboptimal. And that's only when you have the luxury of having folks that are able to, to do that. And so I think, I, I don't know that, you know, I think this, this question about like one sacrifice for another, one of the challenges that I've seen in that is often like a mismatch of sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's like always like the sacrifices always end up stacked up on folks who were already, you know, disenfranchised yes. and, and, and kind of economically marginalized to begin with. So it, you know, it's tough because I think, you know, it, the sacrifices just end up completely on one side. So we say we're all ready to sacrifice, but in fact, you know, most of those sacrifices are being borne by people who are already most affected by COVID and, you know, pre-existing kind of inequities. So I think the school issue that that struck me was just this element around if, you know, there's something like, you know, I'm not going to mans- avoid mansplaining, but the statistic was something like 2 million women who are not in work that were working. And yeah. I think people have had to let leave the workspace to manage. And, you know, and as with everything in society, like, you know, women are stronger and, and bear more of, of, of the sort of responsibility. So I think... 
the, those things I think just shouldn't be dismissed. It doesn't, it's, it just at least should be part of the conversation. That doesn't right. mean that we're not denying anything. It just means that it should be part of the conversation and not in a way of like, if I say this, that means that I'm, I don't know, I'm like a bad person for even raising some competing health issues or competing thoughts. No, and I actually, the reality is it's only then, well, why don't you think about ways to, you know, you know, overcome those challenges in terms of like making sure people are not fired, maybe organizing like childcare or other things so that as Julia said, and as you've said, like you match a resource with a restriction. I actually am like, I'll say this, like you could lock, first of all, I don't think you could lock down the world, but like, even if you could, it's fine, do it. But make sure that actually then like every farmer who gets paid by like lettuce plant that they pick up, everybody in a supply chain who gets paid daily who's in the gig economy, these folks, we have to create systems. It's not easy. We have to ensure that these folks are going to get paid. Somebody has to pay them. Undocumented folks, documented folks, contract hires, agency hires, all of these folks. It's like the systems need to be put in place. And then sure, like lock it, lock it down, shut it down, do whatever you want to do. But it's actually just never, it never plays that way. It is always the fact that like we say these things and then we shut down and we're like, we'll figure out school lunch programs and we'll figure out how to ensure people don't get evicted. We'll put a moratorium, which by the way, people need to come up with somehow like a year's worth of rent in like a few months or they're all going to get evicted. So there's just, there's a lot of these like accumulating issues that have not been meaningfully addressed and have not been part of a narrative. And they should be because it is intent, you know, is indeed like one of the most complex times in history from that perspective. I think that's well said. I guess the last thing I want to ask you guys before we, everyone has to jump off um, is a, a question about, um, I guess, um, you know, all political parties, I always hear people say that, um, you know, they, 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 they want to, um, uh, there's always some element in a political party that has a very fringe or um, hurtful view. And uh, I often hear people talk about like, we got to get that part of the party under control. Like if we don't get them under control, like it'll hurt us all because we're all going to look like we hold these fringe views. And I guess my worry is that um, like that, there's some truth about that with public health experts, epidemiology, the sort of the academia around um, those like people who who are, are prominent now. There are many, many people who are balancing things well intentioned. Um, and then there are a few people who are in our party. I mean, they are public health people, but they are um, maybe taking a fringe view. And I guess, um, you know, somebody listened to my show and they're like, um, this person wrote me uh, this long, very sweet email, but it said like, you're much more critical of people who are very close to you than you're critical of people who are far from you. And he said, you know, why, why is that? You're never critical of the people who, you know, you're on the other side of the issue with. And then I'm like, well, I'll tell you why, because like, I'm trying to like help my people. Like, like I want us to like, I think that if we can get our messaging a little bit better and we can move a little bit on some of these issues, like we would be in a more stronger position um, to get our point of view across politically, um, economically and, and, and in medicine. Um, and so that's why I'm more critical of people closer to me, not that I don't love them. Of course, I love them. That's because they're closer to me. Of course, um, I guess I'm wondering, like, I feel like you both are in this business that part of what motivates you and you cognizant of is you believe in public health and you believe in your professions Um, And you're trying to bring everyone a little bit towards your point of view, um, a little bit of moderation, a little bit of of, of thinking about these things, not because you you don't like them, but because you want to be stronger and you worry that the positions they're staking out will leave us incredibly vulnerable in the future. I wonder if you might, I don't know, close with some thoughts on this, if if it means anything to you. Julia? Yeah, that really resonated for me, actually, just... um... I've written this this series of essays for The Atlantic during the pandemic, which I hadn't hadn't expected to do. Um, And while the audience is the public, I my my secret audience in my head who I'm writing for is my colleagues. Yeah. And and so I could write for a peer reviewed journal, but I don't think it would work quite the same way. And and yeah, I mean, there is there is a way that my my. Yes, I want to put pressure on politicians who are in positions of power who can make policies happen that will make things better. And and I've tried to to do that to some extent in the way that Matthew Smith is pushing us to do. Right. Um, but 
but I ultimately, my own personal crusade is wanting to make public health better and make public health stronger. And, and I see ways that I worry during the pandemic about what is happening with public health communication and policies and also all the things that are happening that are not public health's fault. So, mm. you know, I'm on this crusade about like trying to, to um, shift the way that health professionals communicate with the public. Mm-hmm. But, but also there's a lot of things happening right now that are out of public health's hands. Mm-hmm. Um, politicians making decisions, um, you know, to, just... And, and all of that is going to fall on public health. Yes. Everyone, I think all of that is perceived right now as big public health. Literally, this is like a phrase people are using. Yes, which big public laugh. health. Like, I what, saw is big, what is big public health? <laughs> I wish we were big. Yeah, I know. Um, With a budget but, of 100 grand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. But right. we are going to take the fall for all of that. Yeah, and and it's I just something so. I'm, I've been sort of conscious of and worried about. And so to the extent that what's within our control, the ways that we, we communicate with yeah. the public, the, the policies we do have some influence over, like at least that we, we can take our little corner of that and do our best. And and that's that's what I'm trying to do. I think you're doing a great job. Steph, I'll give you the last thoughts, then we'll then we'll go. Yeah, I mean so thanks for that. And I, I really um I really do echo and 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 feel very um aligned with what Julia said. I, I think, you know, my perspective is at the end of this, people are gonna lose interest in public health. You know, I mean, you know, when, when, whatever it be in, in a year or two years, but like those of us who are committed to this space and this field are going to be in this space for our lifetimes if all goes well. And, you know, and we're going to be, there's, I feel like we're going to be picking up pieces. Folks, virologists will go back to virology work. Immunologists will go back to immunology. Uh, clinicians will focus more on clinical work. And, 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 and those of us like in this space who are trying to like develop policy and programs that are meaningful and address people's needs, are, are still going to be in this space. And so, you know, what I would like at the end of this is that public health, like, you know, kind of sticks to the, its core principles of like, you know, equity, social justice, and participation. I always say that these are three things that I consider to be fundamental. Equity in the sense that we do more for people who need more. Social justice in the sense that we, you know, balance intervention benefits and burden. And participation in the sense that we ask people about the interventions that we want to deliver to them and ask them about how to best deliver those. And so, you know, I think we need to do those. And and broadly, what that means is a return to empiricism. Mm. And so I want at the end of this that public health still maintains this view on empiricism rather than the sort of hammer we're just going to like, you know, hammer and dance and, and all these folks that are like going to move on to whatever, like computer programmers and app developers will go back to their spaces yeah. and we still need to develop, you know, meaningful programs in the space. So that that's what I consider fundamental. And that's why I'm, you know, I'm here, in, you know, and, 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 and I can, you know, and, and we'll continue to for that matter. Well, thank you both for, um, for doing this. It's been a lot of pleasure. I'll just say, I can't, I look forward to the day when I can go from being told online that uh, I'm not qualified to have an opinion on on these matters to return to my old way of being where I was told I was not qualified to have an opinion on cancer drugs, which is what I do in my day job. My day job. That's, that's what it was like before. I was told I wasn't qualified to have an opinion there either. So, um, But thank you both for... Um, for doing this. This is really a lovely conversation. And, um, you know, I, I, I really appreciate this discussion. And I, I think, you, you know, um, if everyone heeded, you know, all your advice and read all your articles, we'd be in a much stronger place. So um, Julia Marcus, pleasure to talk to you. Steph Baral, pleasure to pleasure to talk with you both. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.